Well, that was a much more pleasant introduction than what I expected Lance to give me, to be well honest. He could have said a lot of things that could have been embarrassing. Trouble with Jesus, Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. Uh, Lance invited me to speak in his absence today, and uh, he told me the worship uh, theme for this month, The Trouble with Faith. I've known Lance since he was a child, and uh, since he's in grade school, and uh, I could easily speak on The Trouble with Lance (laughs) better than The Trouble with Jesus. I suspect uh, Lance uh, asked me to come speak today so that you would be really happy to have him back next week. I kind of think that's the reason. But instead of that, my topic is the trouble with Jesus. The question is then, how can Jesus be a problem for our faith? You know, sometimes we arrive at the wrong conclusions. The other day I went to the bank. <clears throat> There's a lady you know, working on her checkbook in the bank. And uh, she asked if I could help her with her balance, so I gave her a push. I, uh, apparently I rove, rose at, arrived at the wrong conclusion about that. She didn't think that was the deal. I told the teller I wanted to withdraw a few hundred dollars. He asked me what denominations. So I said two Presbyterians, four Methodists, six Lutherans, and ten Baptists. He didn't think that was as funny as I did. Have you ever gone to the grocery store and the, you know, you're checking out? And the checker, uh, you know, you got a gallon of milk or something like that. And the checker says, would you like your milk in a bag? No, I'd prefer you leave it in the jug. Thank you very much, though, for the invitation, for the offer. Well, we can arrive at the wrong conclusions about people as well as simple instances like these. By the way, I did not give that lady a push in the bank. I didn't do that. Yogi Berra, some of you baseball fans like uh, know who Yogi Berra was. You know, he died a few years ago. He was a great uh, catcher for the uh, New York Yankees. And he was well known for his malapropisms, you know, saying things that, could, that were goofy. He made a comment, uh, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. He said, it ain't over till it's over. We've all heard that lots of times. Uh, He made the comment, it's like deja vu all over again. We're familiar with that. He made, uh, someone asked him about some restaurant, some popular restaurant. He He made the comment, no one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. (laughs) What a doofus. He, of course, made the well-known comment, uh, baseball fans are aware of this, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. <laughs> that guy was great. He said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> and uh, I've used this before. He said, you better cut the pizza in four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. He told his players one time, pair up in threes. At a ball game back in the 70s, uh, uh, back when streaking was popular, any of you remember that? Any of you remember the streaking? Oh, come on. Yeah, okay, that's okay, I admit it. You guys were probably doing it. But anyway, streaking was a real big thing. I was in college in Joplin, Missouri at Ozark Christian College, Ozark Bible College at the time. 
And uh, there was a big sign, I remember this big sign that said, repent, your end is in sight. You know, I thought that was the funniest thing. Well, he, apparently uh, some streakers ran across the uh, baseball diamond where uh, they were playing one time, and, and someone asked Yogi Berra if they were male or female, men or women fans running across the field. He said, I don't know, they had bags over their heads. <laughs> oh, what a great guy. I think he was perhaps the greatest catcher in all of baseball history. Now, I didn't see all the guys before him because they predate me. But uh, he was a remarkable catcher, remarkable baseball player. But he was more than that. He was on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. Believers and non-believers often arrive at incomplete conclusions about who Jesus is, and that can give us some trouble. What do we learn about Jesus from today's text? Let's read this text together. From Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. I'll come to verses... Uh, I'm only going to read verses 35 to 38 right now. We'll come to the other three verses here in a moment, a few moments. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they left the crowd and took him along, since he was already in the boat, and other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher! Don't you care that we're going to die? Now that familiar story gives us background for understanding some of our faith trouble with Jesus. Let's take a look at those. First of all, our trouble, uh, we have trouble with who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? In our text, the disciples came face to face with his eternal persona. Verse 39. He got up rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence! Be still! And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. When I was in college, we uh, translated this section. My uh, third year of Greek, I loved stupid things like Greek and things. But anyway, uh, my third year of Greek, we were translating this. And we were struggling because Mark's... Uh, Syntax and things are a little bit different and struggling through this and all of a sudden, you know, we were struggling with uh, the translation or, and, and we got to this spot and all of a sudden it was so simple. Silence. Be still. Peace. Be still. Irene. You know. <laughs> it was so easy. All of a sudden, you know, we were struggling all of a sudden, bang. Peace. Be still. Standing in their midst in that modest fishing boat with the sea raging around them in that storm. Perhaps uh, Jesus stood up and was holding on to a single mast to steady himself. And there he was, sovereign God, the creator of the universe, the savior of all life. But still, the disciples only saw a man. Who do you see when you see Jesus? I think most people see a God who has limitations. 
People struggle with things like or ideas like a disease and death. Why didn't God heal her? Why, why did God take him so early in life? Well, the reality is, those things weren't God's fault. Disease and death are not God's design. Those are the result of God's enemy, Satan, and his influence in mankind. God designed us to live. That's why our bodies heal. That's why we fight to survive. God designed us to live. That's why we have resurrection for those who believe in Jesus. We look at natural disasters like, uh, was Dorian? Is that it? That name? Who came up with that name for a hurricane? Her a cane should be a woman. You know, like Doris. Not Dorian. It's not a himicane. You know, I don't know. I'm sorry, ladies. Just, just joking around. Why did God do this hurricane? The other, yesterday, I don't know what the count is now, but yesterday I, they said the count was like 35 dead. Why, did, why does God send tornadoes through Kansas? People ask questions like that. You know. And it's true that nature reveals the might of God's creative power. But these disasters reveal the insidious influence of evil within God's creation, not God's design of creation. Remember what God said after uh, he was finished with creation in Genesis 1? He looked at everything after, after each day, actually. But after day six, he looked at everything and he said, Man, this is very good. I really like what I've done. There was no evil present. There is now. Because of sin's influence, the deterioration of creation. The content of our prayers reveal our perception of God as well. We have the ear of the one who spoke a billion stars into existence in mere moments. Yet, we oftentimes pray for relatively minor concerns. Do you, do you realize that? That'd be like standing next to an atomic power plant and plugging in a blow dryer. You've got all these megawatts of power. Can't you think of something better than a blow dryer? Or a charger for your cell phone? We have the opportunity to affect world events, to impact public decision makers, to influence the sole conditions of our neighbors, of our associates, of our friends, of our classmates, whoever it is you know. The power of creation awaits our petitions of kingdom-impacting prayer, and we ask if we could please get over this cold. All we see is a man holding on to a pole. 
Who is Jesus? He calmed the seas because He created the seas. And He can also calm the turbulence of your life because He is the author of your life. We have trouble with Jesus because like His disciples, Jesus is more than we expect or have experienced. And so we limit Him. So spend more time with Jesus and permit Him to unleash His power before your eyes. Know the person of Jesus. That brings me to my second thought today, and that is the trouble with what we do. What exactly is our problem? Verse 40. Then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? Fear is a common factor in the character of all people. There are times that uh, fear may show our wisdom, actually. I mean, I'm afraid to stick my hand in the fire, aren't you? Because we know what fire will do. Fear can cause us to be cautious or wise in times of danger or distress. But... Fear seldom guides good decision-making. It seldom causes us to make a good decision. Remember when Peter stood in the garden area outside the home of the high priest? Three times he was questioned and challenged. A good decision would have been for Peter to say, Yes, I know Jesus. I've followed him for three years. We're good friends. I I, uh, confess that he was the Messiah, the Christ of God. That would have been good decisions. But what did he do? Three times he was questioned. Three times he feared for his life. And three times he denied who Jesus was. But Peter learned the lesson from those failures of fear. At the end of his life in Rome, his faith was challenged again. But this time he overcame that fear and tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down because he confessed that he was not worthy to die as did Jesus. Courage is not the absence of fear but the action taken that overcomes fear. That's courage. When are you afraid to trust Jesus? When you're at work and are required to compromise your morality or your ethics? because your boss or a superior tells you to do something that you think violates your morality? What do you choose to do or to say in that circumstance? Or perhaps when your kids have a team or sporting club event or a tournament scheduled on a Sunday morning, what do you tell your child about going to church, the importance of being in worship of the Lord of creation versus having a good day on the field. When you're buying a car or a house and you're sitting there before the salesman who says, well, you can afford to make this this payment because of your income this year. I remember these conversations. 
But to, in order to do that, that means you can't give to the church like you have been or think you ought to be. And so you have to make a decision. I really like that car. I don't have to give everything to the church that I have been doing. I could cut back. Or do you limit your purchase in order to honor the Lord Jesus in your giving? If you're struggling in your marriage with your husband or your wife, do you want to throw in the towel or do you want to ask Jesus to change your character? What I'm saying is that we need to exercise the courage of faith to trust Jesus. We might have trouble with Jesus because we limit ourselves. We don't have the courage to extend ourselves. What aspect of faith gives you pause? When are you afraid to say yes to Jesus? Third idea this morning. We have trouble with what Jesus expects. Have you ever been in a tornado? I mean, most of us have if we've lived in these parts very long. I've been through uh, several, actually. Uh, first one, I was a teenager. I was in junior high. I was out on football practice field. We are going to have a game the next day. And uh, my buddy, his name was Steve also, Steve Clevenger. He and I were, a storm was coming in. The coaches told us to head back to the junior high building, and so we did. And Boy, we looked up, and here was this funnel cloud. Man, it looked like it was going to take the tops off the goalposts. It was so low. And we took off running. Man, we ran through this alley, headed back to the junior high. And uh, there was pea gravel in that alley, and it was banging off our helmets. sounded like somebody was working on us with hammers. And we got back and found out that that funnel cloud had touched down about a half mile away. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't scared enough of that tornado at the time. I learned a little bit different respect for it. Although it wasn't all bad because it sat down on my piano teacher's house. I didn't have piano lessons for a while. I've been through some others <clears throat> nearby, watched them go over us, all kinds of things. It's kind of, I don't, I'm not afraid of storms particularly. It's kind of fun to watch them as long as it doesn't hit you, I guess. But you see those gray, pea-green clouds rapidly running, moving across the sky and start swirling and moving in unusual ways. Just look ugly. And they get torrential rains and hail explodes around you and tearing winds, bearing, bending trees over and doing all sorts of things with, uh, that seem to defy physics. And the funnel cloud exploding through buildings. Could you imagine being in the midst of that storm and some guy steps outside in the maelstrom shouting, Okay, knock it off! And the storm stops, and the sky's immediately clear. I can't imagine it. But that's what happened to the disciples in that boat. What would you think 
had you been there. Well, here's what the disciples thought. Verse 41, and they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. <laughs> oh man, the disciples had to come to terms with Jesus. Who on earth were they dealing with? We may have trouble with Jesus because we must come to terms with him. Like the disciples, when Jesus is part of your life, the status quo changes. A couple weeks ago, I had an annual checkup with my doctor at my doctor's office. During the, I'm, a, I'm diabetic. I became diabetic a year and a half ago. It was a real surprise to me because I've always been pretty active and uh, decided at the time it's time to uh, take the Hershey Kisses out of my office drawer that I was eating all day long, day after day after day. A real surprise, you know, that that stuff wasn't good for me. Well, I went into the doctor's office here a couple weeks ago, and so I'm sitting there, and then, you know, it was a regular checkup thing, you know. And the nurse asked me this battery of questions, and she was asking about uh, my hearing and that kind of thing. I'm 67 years old, and, and so those things tend to get weaker. <clears throat> I told her I'd been to an audiologist and what they'd said, and, and that I was okay. The audiologist told me I was probably going to need hearing aids. I said, really, when? He said, in about 20 years. I said, great news. Now my wife can't believe it. The nurse asked me, she said, uh, do you have difficulty understanding small children or women? <laughs> if you have grandkids, you know, about this tall, nobody understands what they're saying except each other. Isn't that amazing? You know, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, you know, they jabber all the time saying all kinds of stuff. And you're trying to figure out, you know, you're listening real close. Okay, that sounds like laundry detergent. But I don't think that's what she's saying. Or, you know, you're trying to figure out these words. Or, oh, you mean this? No, Grandpa, I don't mean that. You, know, you mean this? No, I don't mean that. You know. And, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, they're so goofy. But they'll talk to each other, carry on long conversations. So they have a different language. Children are born with their own language system. And they have to learn English. So, yes, I have trouble understanding small children. And women... I have never understood women. That's why I told the nurse. She just laughed and went on. Didn't ask me any more questions. Well, we all have to make adjustments in life. Jesus expects us to change. In fact, he implants the Holy Spirit within us as a change agent to assist us and motivate us to change. And we need to be sensitive to the direction of God's spirit as he is intertwined with our spirit, as Romans tells us. And that change causes a realignment of our thinking. We change from, the thinking, uh, from thinking the way our culture and society thinks to thinking the way our Christ thinks. Now there's a one word term for that you know what it is? Repentance. Repentance comes from 
The English word is a translation of two Greek word, of a Greek word, metanoia, which comes from two smaller words, meta, change, noia, mind. Meta, like uh, metamorphosis, change of body, meta, change, and noia, mind, like paranoia, beside yourself, if you're paranoid. You're not really paranoid if somebody's following you, by the way. But paranoia, noia means mind, para, beside, beside yourself. Metanoia, repentance, means we change our mind. We change the way we think. We change our thinking. From the way our culture thinks, from the way society thinks, from the way the world thinks, to the way Jesus thinks, the way God thinks. That's why it's so important to know who God is by reading your word. Paul says it this way, Philippians 1, 27. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the way we're supposed to think. Now we have to do two things in order to accomplish this. One, we need to know the gospel of Christ. We need to know the word. Uh, my wife and I were down in Branson uh, last weekend. We went to this uh, really nice church family uh, 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 what's the name of it? Wa uh, I don't remember the name of it now. But it was uh, just real, real close to the strip, and we went there, looked it up, saw it, looked at the thing online, thought, well, let's go there. Oh, it was terrific. Really enjoyed it. Uh, mega church, you know, had three worship services. One we were in had hundreds of people in it, and we were at the 10 o'clock service, so I don't know what the other two were like, but oh, it was jam packed, great worship service, great time. And, uh, but I noticed something. And, you know, I had, didn't pay attention this morning. I'm not making a comment today here or my church where I came from or anyplace else. But I noticed something there. And I think it's a trend in our current culture. We put uh, all kinds of stuff up on the screen, on the screens. We put all scripture up on the screen so it's easy for everybody. And everybody in that church walked in with a cup of coffee. Starbucks, or they had a coffee deal out in the foyer, you know. Everybody came in with cups of coffee. Or their uh, uh, containers, you know, their insulated containers they brought from home. You know, those things. Uh, I don't drink coffee, so I don't use them. But, but everybody came in with cups of coffee. My wife and I walked in with Bibles. I think we were the only two people in there with Bibles other than the preacher. Now, I know a lot of people are, are reading, you know, are using their smart devices, you know, for their scripture. That's good. That's good. But I've always told folks, when you're reading your Bible, make notes. Underline passages. Make notes in the, past, in the, in the margins. Make, do your own cross-references when you read something. Read your Bible regularly. Wear it out. Wear out your Bible. And make your notes in there. Mark, mark up your Bible. A good Bible is a marked-up Bible, not a clean Bible. It's pretty hard to mark up a personal device. I wonder how well we actually know the Word these days. The second thing we need to do to accomplish 
living a, a life in a manner worthy of the gospel is to be purposed in our lifestyle, not casual. Don't go through life like a machine, doing everything everybody else does. Be thoughtful about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Philippians 3.14 says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Jesus expects you to change. He expects you to change. Not be the same person today as you were yesterday. He expects you to be improved today over yesterday. He expects you to be improved tomorrow over today. That's what his expectation is for you and for me. You should accept, uh, expect and accept nothing less for yourself. So that raises the question, what do I do today? First of all, decide to take steps today to know Jesus as he presents himself in Scripture and not as someone uh, that someone else paints for you. A second thing is to develop a faith courage that trusts Jesus in all of your life decisions. That takes courage. To trust Jesus. A third thing to do today is to come to terms with Jesus who expects you to change from a worldview to a Christ view. It's okay. It's okay to arrive at wrong conclusions now and then. But it's not okay to accept wrong conclusions as being normal. Get it right with Jesus.